This is Sovereign Debt, a podcast on greening the global economy and debt sustainability. I'm your host, Jill Doshi. Hello, everyone. I know a lot of you follow this podcast because you're interested in sustainable finance and in particular how we can hopefully create new sovereign bond instruments and mobilize private capital into emerging and frontier markets. Because as we all know, meeting these global needs around climate change requires a lot of money. <laughs> so we, we need to get creative. So today's guest is here to explain how some of these countries are, are meeting these challenges. And we're very honored to have Herman Camille here today, who is the director of the debt management unit of Uruguay which, as many of you know, is the second country to issue a sustainability-linked bond and the first country to issue one that had both a step-up and a step-down coupon. So, Herman, I'm so honored that you agreed to come on the podcast. Thank you so much. Hello, Jill, and thank you very much for the invitation. And also, it's a pleasure to be here and, and share the experience of Uruguay on sustainable financing. So, before we get into the details of the transaction, which I know we will. Could you tell us, just set the stage for us a little bit about the challenges facing Uruguay? We know that in many countries, the challenge is really about mitigation, about lowering emissions, whereas other countries, it's about transitioning to renewable energy or just finding energy sources for the development Others, it's more about adaptation and changing growing seasons or drought or desertification. Could you just, as, as, as to kick us off, just kind of set the scene for us, for those listeners that might not be as familiar with Uruguay, and just tell us what you're, what you're coping with on the ground. Sure. Let, let me provide some context then, because many, as you say, many who may be listening in may not be familiar with, with a small country like Uruguay. Uh, over the past 30 years, Uruguay has been able to grow its economy, but at the same time, significantly reducing the greenhouse gas emissions across many of these uh, economic sectors. In, particularly, in particular, Uruguay is now one of the leading countries in terms of sustainable electricity generation, and that has a lot to do with a substantial shift to renewable sources of electricity production that happened in my country over the last 10 years. Now. Beyond electricity generation, also uh, public policies in Uruguay have prompted have prompted uh, substantial investments and, and technological changes in the cattle raising industry, which is a, a key sector in Uruguay. Uh, and that has allowed to reduce the intensity of methane emissions, which is also, uh, we know, has global warming effects coming from beef production. But beyond uh, greenhouse gas emissions in Uruguay, also the country has made the protection of natural ecosystems a key part of the country's environmental strategy. And as we're going to talk in a minute, part of the design of the bond is to incorporate uh, the, the, the goals of preserving natural uh, capital in Uruguay and particularly making sure that agricultural activity is not, as it is in much of the world, a driver of deforestation. Uh, now, despite despite these large strides that we have done in terms of reducing the carbon intensity of the economy, we need to make uh, take additional steps to tackle climate change. And we, the country needs to accelerate the decarbonization in, say, heavy transportation, but also 
as a food supplier in a, with an increasing world population, Uruguay needs to meet the challenge to feed the world, but at the same time to reduce methane emissions while preserving its unique grassland ecosystem. So that's the context for the, for the financial innovation in sovereign bond finances that we have undertaken over the last couple of years. So in other words, like the environmental kind of concerns or strategies are an integral part of the country's development plan. This isn't is. something kind of extra or externally kind of driven. This is really kind of uh, an internal part of your development plan. Indeed. We, we are focused on achieving inclusive economic growth, but uh, while mitigating the impacts of climate change, but also remaining a steward of our natural resources. And, and that includes protecting biodiversity. So we understand the kind of the priority of the environment to Uruguay. And so then the question is, okay, how do you finance this? And then how do you place this financing within the context of the rest of your financing plans? So when you as debt manager are kind of looking out over the horizon of what's available, there are a lot of different types of financing. There's kind of just plain use of proceeds bonds, and then there's these performance-linked bonds, which is what you've chosen. Can you kind of walk us through your thought process of why you chose this KPI-linked bond, a bond that's linked to a performance vis-a-vis -a, -vis a key performance indicator versus just a ring-fenced green bond, kind of a more, let's say, kind of conventional at this point. And we'll we'll get to like why you didn't even just go for just a plain vanilla bond, but maybe maybe that's the first question is why why go for one of these special kind of sustainable finance bonds, and then why in particular the KPI linked? What was your thinking in that? Yes, so I, I think that's a very good question because say up until October last year in 2022, which when we issued our first sustainable uh, SLB sustainable financing uh, bond. Uruguay had only issued plain vanilla bonds in dollars, in local currency, in yens. So as we entertain the possibility of integrating the, the, the strong ESG foundations of the country into our sovereign uh, financing, the question was, should we pursue a more traditional uh, use of proceeds bonds, like a, a green bond, for example, or should we look into uh, what Chile had done a few months before, which is a performance-based approach, which, sure. had, had the, which is mostly a, a route that had been taken by corporates so far. Exactly. And, and we, in the end, we decided to go with a, with a performance-based uh, approach. And, and basically, we saw several appealing features in developing finance instruments that, that are linked to the performance of environmental indicators of a country. So let me walk you through and break it down into the reasons why we thought it was particularly uh, appealing for a, for a country like Uruguay. And, and, and I'm going to break it down from the point of view of the issuer, in this case Uruguay, but also from the point of view of the potential investor that in the end uh, is, 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 is our client, is the one that is, uh, is supposed to right. be buying the bond. So first, what, what we liked about going with a, with a performance-based uh, approach is that it, 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 it provided us with a chance to connect very clearly our debt management strategy to, to the goals in the Paris Agreement. And by doing so, we were strengthening the commitment of the country to, the sustain, to our sustainability agenda. 
in, in other words, we are we were enhancing the accountability and the credibility of the climate of the of the, of the country to climate action. So when you connect your debt management strategy, when you align your debt management strategy to your Paris Agreement goals, basically what you're doing is you're raising the profile and the stakes of your commitment. But some would say, well, why would you do that? Like, isn't that making it harder on yourselves? Oh, it is definitely taking a much bigger commitment because you, what you're doing is you're saying we are signed to, pre we are prepared to walk the talk, uh, and but, in this case, what you're showing is the country's resolve, uh, politically, technically, to turn your your goals in the Paris Agreement, which are based on your NDC NDCs, into basically a financially binding commitment. So right. this is a very big leap for an emerging market country. Uh, it's really forging a bold new pathway. And, 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 and we think, we are of the view that if, by making that commitment, indeed, we are raising the stakes, but we are also bringing potential benefits for the country that goes over and beyond a bond issuance as a financing strategy, but it's also a, a statement about the country that could have benefits in other, in other, in other areas of our relationships with the world. For example, trade integration, diplomatic connections, uh, statements in, in the international international forums. Now, the second reason why we think it's, a, it's an interesting instrument for a, for a sovereign is because it puts the focus more on outcomes, on, on results, mm -hmm. on delivery, on, some, on climate performance objectives, and what are the actions that you need. That, this is not to belittle that when you do a green bond, you're also putting the focus on how you're going to use uh, those proceeds. But here, the focus is more on the actual outcomes. So it, it, it really sets the stage for a country not only to set uh, goals which are ambitious, but also have, having to accomplish that on a predefined timeline. And in our case, as we're going we're gonna to develop later, this timeline is very tight. Is uh, through 2025. No, exactly. So it seems like you've you've like you say you raised the stakes even higher for for yourselves. Now, was there like a financial benefit to doing that? I see that you're you're talking about these other kind of ancillary benefits of credibility and ambition and and perhaps could have with trade partners even diplomatic pluses, but. From a financial point of view, was there a what people call a greenium? Did you did you feel like you achieved like a a better pricing, or did were you able to access uh, a new investor base? Was there was there a financial incentive as well to pursuing this more challenging road that you took? Yes, uh, I, I, indeed, I, we think there, there were several potential. There, there were several benefits. That we saw, we also have to remember that when we came out to the market, it was quite a challenging backdrop. And still, we were very satisfied with the market's uh, broad embrace, not only of the concept of, of an SLB, which continues to be quite rare for the sovereign, but remember, we were introducing for the first time a potential step-down feature for a global SLB uh, in, a, in such a challenging environment. And, 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 and we, what we, we, what we really, we're very satisfied is that we saw that investors incorporated the notion that a country's potential environmental outperformance uh, can lead to lower credit risk. And I think that's one of the big messages that came out of, of, of the outcome of our transaction, it, meaning 
we had almost 200 investors that were willing to, to invest in a bond where uh, a potential outperformance of our goals would lead to a lower coupon. But underlying that concept was that uh, the overall performance of the bond could improve if the, if the country were to, um, to, to, to overperform on its targets. I, I would say that beyond the pricing itself, the investor backing for the trade was solid. We had a large and diverse, high-quality investor base from almost 200 investors. Uh, more than 30% of the allocated accounts were ESG-dedicated. And, and interestingly, interestingly, approximately 40 accounts participated in Uruguay's and in a Uruguayan transactions for the first time. You did feel like you reached kind of new investors. Yes. Not only did we reach new investors, but it was interesting because we also were by by incorporating this ESG component in a in an environmental performance bond, we were able to uh, tap into the pool of different funds within as within the same investor account, right? So what happened with, in the case of Uruguay is that our MB spreads are very tight, okay, compared to the rest of Latin America. So several investors were saying, well, uh, we like Uruguay, but it's pricey. The fact that we introduced this SLB component improve on the um, on the pool of resources that we could tap even within the same investor account. So sometimes the potential benefit doesn't necessarily come from increasing the number of names from different accounts, but within accounts, uh, being able to access different pool of money. So instead of just just hitting kind of the emerging market pool of money, you you reached into their other pools of money that were ESG. Or, or allocated for some other purposes within within the same investment the same kind of the whole umbrella <laughs> umbrella yes and and then on, on let me say something maybe it's a little bit technical but I I think it's important to highlight because a lot of the discussion is sometimes framed in terms well did you get a greenium or didn't get any didn't you get any greenium was it worth all the investment all the time all the work for two years uh, did you see any any price benefit? It's important to say that estimating the green, the greenium or the SLBium, if you, if I may, exactly, exactly, it's more art than science, and 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 people who are involved in the market and and, and book runners know that because first, what you need to do to estimate the greenium is is to estimate what is the new issue premium on your issuance, and 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 as you know, yield this requires comparing the yield at issuance with what would be the fair value in secondary markets. And you can only estimate that. That's not observable. It requires certain assumptions. But no, it's not only about estimating the new issue premium, which in itself is can be debatable, but then you have to compare that new issue premium to what it would have been the new issue premium if you had issued a plain vanilla bond, meaning a bond that is exactly the same, except that it doesn't have an SLB feature. So as you can see, estimating the greenium uh, can be can be hard. So uh, all we all we can say, and I think it's important for those interested in in the concept of step up or step down. One is that we found no evidence that investors charged us an additional surcharge for accepting the potential of a step down. I think that's rather than thinking in terms of premium, we need to think of whether investors were requiring any potential compensation for the possibility. Of a of a step. Was there any charge against you for for for, for doing such a exactly? What I can tell you, and uh, maybe as an anecdote, 
uh, that may be interesting for those that are listening in is the, the deal was launched on the back of a very extensive marketing campaign. We, en we engage over, over a year and a half, we engage more than 115 different investors accounts, right? So as you can imagine, it was a long campaign and we had to provide accounts with a lot of background as to many of the questions you're asking. What was our LSLB strategy? What was the rationale for the contemplated structure? What were the details on the infrastructure that we had to put in place in connection with the whole process? Ministry coordination, verification, reporting, uh, tracking, interactions with, with IGMA, with rating agencies, with index providers. So you, you can imagine the, the whole span of the process. Now, at the beginning, back in mid-2021, remember, we issued the bond in October 2022, we, we faced a lot of pushback on the notion of a step-down. This, 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 this notion had not been tested before. Uh, all SLBs that had been issued up until then, including Chile's in February 2022, only had a step, meaning it only had a penalty in case you missed the goals, but the coupon will remain the same uh, if if you if you met or or over or overachieve your goals. So at the beginning there was a lot of pushback, Jill. Uh, people people were say, investors were saying that didn't uh, it wasn't consistent with the fiduciary mandate, for example, or that their systems would not. <laughs> we're not th thought to incorporate a too step hard to down. Model. It's too hard yes. to model, Herman. <laughs> hard to model. And but but I'm not I'm not saying this in a in a pejorative way. I'm I'm saying there were a lot of there were there, there were a lot of reasons that investors were coming up to say, no, I don't feel comfortable uh, having a step down. And yet as time went by and we continued to, to showcase the uh, Uruguay's uh, experience, explain the rationale, and basically telling, telling to investors, look, this is not coming out, out of our need to do it. It's not that we need to, to, to issue a bond like this one. And we are trying to do this to really raise the stakes and further commit to a sustainability agenda. Because our bonds, the plain vanilla ones, the ones that you have a, a yield curve now, already are incorporating our ESG premium. We were telling investors, look, we are already benefiting because GP Morgan's ESG adjusted MB, Uruguay's weight in that MB ESG adjusted is twice the traditional MB. So we are already getting the demand for ESG in our plain vanilla bonds. So this is not coming out of needs. It's coming more out of virtue. And I think that resonated with investors, the fact that we wanted to go one step ahead. And, and then the other thing that resonated, Jill, with investors, as we discussed the step up and step down, is say, look, the focus shouldn't be only on the coupon. Meaning, in case Uruguay overachieves its targets and you have a step down, and again, it's very, very ambitious, I should say. It's not the most likely scenario, but in case we overachieve our goals and you and you and, and there's a reduction in the coupon that doesn't mean that the investor will be worse off because many investors were saying okay i'm going to price this bond to the worst case scenario for me which is that you overachieve your 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 goals no we we don't, we said we don't agree if we overachieve our goals probably what's going to happen is that the price of our bonds are going to go up 
because our credit fundamentals would increase because ESG would be incorporated in our credit strength. Right, right, right. So, so once you start framing the discussion, instead of saying, hey, a step down is a stick, it's a hit on the investor. And you substitute that by saying, if we overachieve, actually what you're doing is you're strengthening your credit fundamentals. Once you mm -hmm. frame the conversation that way, then it's easier to see why this is why the incentives of investors and, and, and issuers are aligned. And the same way, if Uruguay has to pay a step up, meaning if we do not meet our goals, Uruguay should not see the step up mm -hmm. as a penalty. Mm -hmm. We shouldn't see the step up as a penalty. We should see it as a compensation to the investor that was willing to take a vote of confidence on the country that it would achieve its goals. And if for some reason it does not achieve its goals, probably the price of our bonds will go down. Mm -hmm. And a step up is just partially compensating the investor for that. I like the way you frame that in the sense that it's it's not a it's not a penalty because I think a lot of people think of it along those and that's one of why many of us struggle with the idea of a step up coupon um, in the sovereign space is that well wait a minute if a country is failing to achieve their goals why would you suddenly then start beating them up <laughs> why 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 charge them more when they're actually struggling. Actually, what is true is that this kind of SLB structures have a procyclical risk, meaning that your your coupon will, from the point of the issuer, is a procyclical risk because your coupon will go up whenever you you miss your 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 goals, which typically could happen under exceptional circumstances. But we had another investor say that's that we're saying we don't like. It's not that we don't like the step down, we don't like the step up, said some investor. Because we are going to be seen as rooting for failure. You, you shouldn't be rooting for an increasing coupon because probably when the coupon increases, your overall returns would actually decrease because the credit of the country could potentially suffer. So what you're saying is that the investor and the issuer are aligned, in fact, and that you, you do all want the, the targets to be met. Mm -hmm. Not for just some feel-good, save-the-planet reason, but actually for financial reasons, because it's a strengthening of the credit story, and it's a strengthening of Uruguay. And the other thing we were telling investors, even those that, that did not participate, we were telling investors, look, whenever there's a bond transaction, everybody participates, even those, even, even those that are not in the order book. Every investor holding Uruguay participates. because the price of the whole year curve changes whenever you have an issuance. Right, right. Several investors that did not participate in the SLB for the reasons that could be fair uh, or, or for any reason actually should be rooting for Uruguay to perform or overperform because that would have an impact in the whole yield curve, not only on the SLB. Right. So that's how we try to cast the conversation in terms of a, in terms of a mechanism for distributing risks and compensations across investors and across issuers without appealing to the notions of a penalty, uh, but rather more about overall, uh, the way you integrate uh, your credit risk, uh, the way you integrate ESG foundations into credit risk and how get, that gets translated into the market price of your bonds. That's how we want to, to cast it. 
along that idea of the benchmark, because that's one of the things that we have heard that are a concern of some issuers of just saying, well, how does this fit in? And if we have too many thematic bonds or special bonds in, in our portfolio, like it, it kind of messes up the, the yield curve. Like you don't see it that way. Or what is your response to that? So far, we we haven't had any any evidence of that. The, the 2034 bond has seemed to have integrated nicely to the rest of the yield curve. Uh, it, it could happen though that as you get closer to the to 2025 or actually to 2027, when we're going to get the data on, on verification, uh, what is going to be interesting is that the, the relative prices of the bond could help you back out to have a market based measure of the probability that the market assigns to meeting your goals based on the mm-hmm. pricing. Uh, right. And in fact, there, there, there are two, uh, the couple of Dijalil, uh, which is a, an academic that has been uh, working a lot in, in, into SLBs and co-authors have been trying to study and to try to back out the implicit probability of um, hitting your goals based on, on corporate SLBs. I had a chance to discuss with him and his co-author on on, on, on how to measure this for a sovereign like Uruguay. Uh, but so far, we, we haven't yet uh, seen any, any kind of uh, deviation. If, any, if anything, we have been surprised by the strong increase in, in secondary market prices since we should. Uh, part of it has been due to the fact that there's been a repricing in the U.S. yield curve. But still, once you, you adjust for that, We've seen a very nice run in the in the price of the SLB in the secondary market. So overall, we feel good not only about the outcome of the primary transaction, Jill, but it's also very important to see how it performs in the secondary market. Right, and we kind of skipped over, and that's my fault. But the actual KPIs you mentioned, you know, kind of the the natural capital and the forest. But can you just Walk us through how you chose those particular KPIs and and that process. Um, I think you were working with UNDP on that, but I might be wrong. In this particular bond, there are two KPIs, but how 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 did you decide and and what is the monitoring kind of burden going forward on that? Is is does this bond add to that burden, or is this things you were going to be doing anyway? Okay, so basically what we did then in a nutshell was to link our bond financing strategy to, to certain climate and nature targets that were already established under the Paris Agreement. So we're basically, we're building a, a, a bridge between the world of, uh, of uh, climate finance and the world of climate change, right? So, and to do that, we, we set up goals with respect to two key performance indicators. The first one was reducing the intensity of greenhouse gas emissions in the economy, meaning total emissions. Uh, as a share of real GDP. And the second KPI was preserving the native forest area in the country. This second one actually resonated very much, was very well received, particularly among European investors. So why did we decide to go with those two KPIs? Well, we think they address two different but but complementary environmental global public goods. The first one is about mitigating global warming. And the second one is about preserving a key carbon sink, which is the native forest. The SPTs, meaning the, the performance targets for those KPIs, uh, were based on quantitative goals that were set for 2025 and were established in the national determined contribution 
that Uruguay published in 2017. And here I want to be highlight something that sometimes gets overlooked. These targets on these two KPIs were exogenous, meaning predetermined to the decision to issue the bond. Meaning mm -hmm. in this, when, when we set the targets in 2017, there was no discussion whatsoever yeah. about having a bond based on them. So that adds, I think, to the integrity of the, of the whole project. Now, right. these two targets imply, as I was saying at the beginning, making additional strides to achieve, uh, Uru to cut Uruguay's aggregate gross emissions uh, by half while, ma while maintaining 100% of its native forest cover. Now, this second one, maintaining 100% of our native forest area, implies a net zero deforestation commitment. And right. this, as I was saying, resonated very strongly with accounts that value a lot the conservation of natural capital and the protection of biodiversity. And as you know, uh, this came out, uh, this was at the forefront of the discussion, particularly in COP26 and also mm -hmm. again in COP27. So mm -hmm. once we set the KPIs and the SPTs, a very important part of, of any sustainability uh, link bond framework is the reporting and the verification approach that underpins the framework. Right, mm -hmm. because you can have very good KPIs, very good SPTs, a step up, step down, but if your reporting and verification is not strong and credible, it would be di very difficult for the instrument to take off. Doesn't that add a lot of costs to the government? I mean, beyond the just kind of transaction costs, it, again, kind of trying to be a little bit devil's advocate here, or kind of trying to pick it and, and echo things that I've heard from so many other countries where they're kind of you know, reluctant to go down this route. No, definitely. And and you're being an advocate. I was <laughs> because <laughs> indeed this is <laughs> because indeed this is something that we we thought about ourselves. I mean, because okay, if you want to make some the reporting to be accurate, if your availability of data has to be timely, if the disclosure has to be transparent, you have to have a verification, an external verification that is credible. That's all hard to do in some places. Well, at anywhere, <laughs> actually. It's, it's very hard. And, and in fact, it, that's why it almost took us two years to put together with a lot of interministerial coordination. And I would highlight two things that we were able to accomplish. The first one is uh, to move from reporting greenhouse gas emissions from biennial to annual frequency. So yeah. we, we put it in that's line amazing. with the standards of most developed economies. For example, the US and Europe report their greenhouse gas emissions every year. And, and Uruguay starting in May this year, gonna start reporting every year. And, and the other thing that we had to do for forest area cover is to use geospatial data and satellite image mapping to estimate the native forest area every four years, which again is quite demanding. Mm -hmm. And finally, we also committed, and this was an innovation in the whole process of the bond, to have an external and independent and a qualified review conducted by the United Nations Development Program. The UNDP had never before been willing to uh, provide its uh, auditing process for a country on its KPI throughout the whole life on, of an SLB. So that in itself was a statement uh, of backing uh, Uruguay. So mm -hmm. to your question on, on, indeed, I would say to, to, uh, to, to, to people that are, are listening in and, and, and maybe in, entertaining the possibility of developing a, an SLB, yes, it's challenging, it's resource intensive, 
because you need to develop the reporting for the for the sustainability bonds. You need to establish a lot of in, interministerial coordination. But also it has a lot of benefits, Jill, of, mm -hmm. of developing this reporting. Because, for example, we, we had to work with four different ministries, with five different ministries. And, right. and, and you start seeing that you start creating champions for sustainable finance in different ministries. Mm -hmm. And that also leads to a more harmonized communication across the government and how you discuss the different trade-offs. And that in itself would help you to achieve the goals. Yeah. Uh, so so, so the, the whole sustainability reporting is a journey. And you, you cannot let the, the, the perfect be enemy of the good. Uh, what's important is to get started and, and to be committed to, to continuous progress over time. It's interesting you mentioned that interministerial coordination because Potomac Group helped produce a, a guide for debt managers who are considering kind of sustainable finance instruments. And, and we came up with seven steps. And the first step is that interministerial coordination. And when we talk to governments, that's the one that's kind of the hardest to get going. But you're absolutely right. Is once you start getting it going, suddenly you have people in the Ministry of Finance talking to Ministry of you know, Environment and then Fisheries and Labor and all the, all, everyone, energy, everybody starts getting involved and, as you say, starts kind of aligning the goals together. It makes it very concrete, but it, it is a challenge. Let me underscore that. First of all, we, first of all, we were aware of the of the work that Potomac Group and and you and, and yourself were doing on, on sustainable finance, and in fact, it, it, your work is cited in our in a sustainability bond framework document uh, with our World Bank colleagues on 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 the sustainability link the hub that has been mm -hmm. recently launched. And indeed, uh, this is a key issue: is that the SLB framework that we put together is a whole of government approach. It doesn't belong only to the to the Ministry of Finance, but rather it, it has to be an economy-wide effort because the greenhouse gases are economy-wide and they exactly. involve uh, the Ministry of Industry, they involve the Ministry of Cattle Raising and Livestock, they involve obviously the Ministry of Finance, they involve the Ministry of Environment and the Ministry of Foreign Relations. But what's interesting is that it, it that strong interministerial coordination and the governance arrangements that you need to put together are going to be critical to ensure that you have a timely and reliable provision of data and that you mm -hmm. communicate clearly and regularly on the progress in achieving those targets. But right. that in itself will help you to maximize the chances to hit the goals. Exactly. So in other words, the, pr the whole process in itself will be self-reinforcing with regards to the targets you need to achieve. Well, and, and as you said earlier, the whole process also creates this virtuous circle in terms of governance and in terms of your credit story. So as you start kind of communicating and coordinating and working towards these goals, and as you start achieving these goals and you set the goals and you monitor them and then you hit them, you, you start to improve the whole story. So I, I think it's, a, it's actually a very powerful tool, which is why we're, we're so excited about it. And what I would add uh, to, to that, uh, Jill, if I may, is Please. when in, in, in thinking about the, the, the potential benefits of, of a structure like this, we were, uh, we were talking about, say, from a point of view of an issuer, the, 
that erases the, your profile and underscores your your credibility to climate action. It puts a focus on outcomes. It it, it makes it incentive compatible because you you, you have a better, a better distribution of risks and, and compensations. But I, I would like to also emphasize that when we thought about putting together this instrument, we also focus on on the demand side, not only on the supply side. We we had to put a, we had to have an eye put on okay, so who are who will potentially be buying these instruments? And, right. and one important development that happened at COP26 was that you had 40, 450 major financial institutions that are, are now committed to making their portfolio net zero by 2050. Mm-hmm. So the question is, how is that capital going to be put, put to use? Exactly. So if you have private finance that is focused on a net zero carbon future, then if you come up with financial instruments that integrate and look to comply with Paris-aligned goals, then you will be able to attract more demand at scale and to meet the country's investment needs. Also, what I'm trying to say is that we also need to think on how we develop financing instruments that are not only fit for purpose for the country, but also for those potential investors that see their mandates evolving. Exactly. The ESG money is some, somewhat tilted towards like by Sweden, <laughs> by Northern Europe, right? And we've had an earlier episode on that of how just some of those kind of scoring systems kind of skew to to developed countries. And so exactly that. It's like trying to kind of develop something that also kind of can bend some of that money into, into other markets that where it's needed. Absolutely. Which actually is a good segue into my my next question, which is many countries, particularly in today's markets, aren't really having perfect access to the market, let's say, mm-hmm. and aren't in a position such as Uruguay. For those countries who may be interested in raising finance one way or another, might need some sort of credit enhancements or, or some other helps. And there's a lot of talk about sustainable finance, but that incorporates other kind of bells and whistles to make it happen. And I I know this might not be, you know, what Uruguay has to think about, but just from your perspective, do you think, given your experience with the SLB, is this something that could lend itself to additional bells and whistles of credit enhancement, of partial guarantees, even some of the insurance products? Oh, definitely. I think there is a, a, a... I think that not only there's a compelling opportunity, but I think there's an urgent need to do that. And, and while it doesn't apply directly to to the case of Uruguay, uh, I had a chance to to, to talk to, to to several times to our colleagues from the World Bank, Fiona Stewart and Anderson Caputo, who you know, and they have been leading intellectually this uh, the the project on trying to integrate the notion of an SLBs, but more focus into countries uh, that. On the one hand, are struggling with this dead nature climate challenge, but have lower sovereign, lower rated sovereigns with with more difficult market access. No, so the question is, and and in that sense, I think credit, the use of credit enhancements uh, is it, key to try to improve market access and and to and to have uh, and to allow those countries to 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 access affordable financing. Uh, to, and the investment that they, they urgently need to create a sustainable economy. 
In fact, if you, if you, the, the most recent IMF Global Financial Stability Report, it includes a strong message that says that it's very important to scale up uh, private climate finance. And for that, it will require new financing instruments where uh, that, that, that will require the involvement of MDBs and, and to attract private financing. And that's, that's basically a, a, a subtle way of saying you will need those guarantees. So, so basically, uh, our colleagues at, at the World Bank and I, and, and I also know Potoma Group has been part of this, of these endeavors has been thinking of, okay, what are the main challenges of scaling up this sustainability linked financing instruments, uh, for market access when there is a mismatch between the risk return of the, uh, of, of the risk return profile of the issuer and the risk return appetite of, of, of the lender, right? So, and that's where, where the credit enhancements come in or, or how to better use your, the concessional capital that you have from DFIs and MDs, no? Uh, now, one, one thing that has been emphasized, and I agree with that, is that for the case of, of countries that have um, more weaker market access or, or credit profiles, it's very important to design structures that are as simple as standardized as possible. So the one, one risk that you run when you, you're trying to fit many bells and whistles is that you end up with creating niche uh, debt instruments that can reduce the liquidity in sovereign debt, in sovereign debt markets. So uh, it, then to summarize it, I definitely think uh, w there is a, an opportunity to develop performance-based instruments tied to environmental indicators with uh, the support of N MDBs that can provide some kind of credit enhancements so, and, and that aligns the goals of uh, climate enhancement together with accessing uh, capital at, at, at the lower cost. I definitely think there is a, a lot of work that can be done there. No, fantastic. I think there's also, even for countries that are in distress, I don't know if you feel yeah. that these can also be coming out of bond exchanges and, and debt exchanges as, as we may or may not see more and more countries having to kind of sit down with creditors, that this could be an interesting, I wouldn't say win-win, because <laughs> obviously those are very hard situations for all involved, but a, a way where both debtor and creditor can come out with some interesting outcomes. I agree, because whenever you're talking about climate change indicators, protecting biodiversity, protecting the forests, you're talking about global public goods. Mm -hmm. So so that offers an opportunity um, for, a for the issuer and, and, and the lender to find a common ground because exactly. the issuer's actions have an, a positive externality on the rest of the world. So definitely debt for nature spots, for example, that are now being discussed with more more intensively Underpinning is the notion that that whatever a country does, it also has positive externalities on other countries, including those creditors uh, that, for some reason, are having trouble uh, collecting their the debt service. No? no, absolutely. Well, I'm very conscious of time, so my last question is a bit of a tradition at this point, where we give the guests the last word. So a lot of our listeners are both, as far as we understand, um, we're in a lot of countries at this point, <laughs> we know, and kind of a combination between the policymakers and decision makers, as well as a lot of 
you know, issuing countries and debt managers. So one last piece of advice or, or your last word to them, what would you say to them as they kind of considering looking at an SLB or, or a sustainable finance instrument? Well, first of all, thanks again for having me in the podcast. Um, I, I, I would first go back to basics. No? I mean, I think that meeting the Paris Agreement goals to address climate change is, is among the top priorities in, of humanity. No? And, and it's what it would in, ensure that we have a livable and, and just future for all. So if, if that's one important premise, then financial markets can help create a, a green future by, enca- by encouraging climate performance. So in other words, we need to harness financial incentives to address climate change. And I think that's the basic notion that was underpinning our SLB and the two-way pricing structure. And we think SLBs, particularly if they have this symmetric pricing structure, is a meaningful way to empower countries to follow Mm -hmm. through on their pledges and live up to their stated commitments. Remember, there are 190 countries that have an NDC out there, so the commitments are already out there. The question is, how are we going to create the incentives for countries uh, to live up uh, to those goals. So the fact that you have an economic consequence to a target that you set incentivizes countries to make those targets a strategic priority, particularly if that comes with a potential reduction in borrowing costs, then that's a, a powerful incentive for governments to take climate action. So that's basically the whole notion underpinning the SLBs that we put together. Because in the end, if you think about it, at the end of the day, investors that, in, that, that put their money in this kind of instruments want to know that they are having a real impact because that's what their clients are demanding. Absolutely. But on the other hand, issuers want to be sure that their efforts and all the work that needs to be done are adequately rewarded. So that's why we, we need to think about these SLBs as a joint endeavor between issuers and, 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 and investors and aligning their incentives. Now, just as a final word, I would say, even with all the work it, it can take, and, and it really demands a lot of transversality agro- across the government, we still think it's worth pursuing. Obviously, each country will have its own limitations, idiosyncrasies, um, hurdles. Uh, but again, we shouldn't make the the perfect be enemy of the good. You, sh- you should start with a, with a basic sovereign structure uh, framework that is credible, that allows for frequent and, and and clear reporting, and also make sure that you have good external verification. And then also the one thing that was very important for us, and I will conclude with this with this idea, is very important to get feedback from investors early on. Mm. Very, very early on, even if that feedback at the beginning is not very forthcoming. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and you need to continue to persevere, uh, particularly because if, if you incorporate that feedback in your design of, of the instrument, then once you bring it to the market, it provides a different level of confidence to, to investors. Now, you won't be able to please everyone with a product. It's like a DJ. It would never please mm-hmm. everyone with the songs it put in. But again, at least you know that you have a common denominator, a, a backing 
where you 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 showed that you were willing to to make the effort to to incorporate those features that that would provide confidence to investors. For example, early on we noticed that uh, the the native forest indicator was a resonated very much with investors, and they wanted that because they didn't have instruments that they could play that they could invest into directly into biodiversity. Mm-hmm. The importance. The importance of having KPIs verifications that are halfway uh, the the life cycle of the bond. Yep. Investors didn't like uh, KPIs that got verified one or two years before maturity. Right. Very important. Very important to have that verification happen even after the trigger, because investors mm-hmm. were saying, "Well, once you get verified, what 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 are the incentives left?" <laughs> then you go out there with the chainsaw. <laughs> <laughs> if you collected the, the step down or if you have a step up, you still have five, six years left of the bond. What are the incentives left? And that we said, well, the incentive is to be reporting every year because you make sure you have the market discipline every year. Mm-hmm. So those are the kind of examples where, where we collected that, we collected that, that feedback, but it, and, and it took almost a year. But again, for us, it, it was worth pursuing. No, and and hopefully, since you could have you forged the path forward, so perhaps for others behind you, it, it will be it will be a little bit easier. And thank you so much for coming on the podcast and for sharing your story. And thank you even more for this incredible work that you've been doing. And We look forward to seeing more innovations coming out of Uruguay. Thank you so much, Herman. No, thank you, Jill, and congratulations for having this this space, this this podcast where you showcase uh, this kind of sustainability finance innovations that that is helpful for everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, leave us a review and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts.